Today's scripture comes from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 2, and verse 13. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not murder. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good afternoon. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic. And again, I want to welcome you to our service. This summer, we've been going through a 10-week sermon series on the Ten Commandments. What do we think of when we think of the Ten Commandments today? Perhaps you've seen the movie The Ten Commandments, and the image of Charlton Heston carrying the stone tablets comes to mind. Or... Uh, in our country, the Ten Commandments, they, they've been a controversial part of a larger culture war between liberals and conservatives. In recent history, there's been a lot of debate over the display of the Ten Commandments on government buildings and courthouses. People have argued that images of the Ten Commandments violate the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, which guarantees freedom of religion. So the Ten Commandments are viewed as oppressive by many people today who don't believe in the Bible. But even amongst many Christians, there is often a general sense of anxiety or ambivalence when it comes to the Ten Commandments. I'm sure for many of you, as we've looked already at the first five commandments so far, how are you doing with the, ten, with the Ten Commandments, at least with the first five? I, I think if you're honest with yourselves or if you've been paying attention, you've come hopefully to realize that you haven't been very good at keeping the Ten Commandments. We've looked at the first two commandments and you've seen, you know what? I, I have other gods before God. I have these idols that I serve, my career, my family, my relationship. I have other gods that I am serving and I am actively worshiping in my life. Or uh, you've, you've looked at the third commandment, which is not to take the, the name of our God in vain, and you thought, you know what, I, I don't really honor God and his name the way that I should. Or the fourth commandment, where uh, honoring and keeping the Sabbath, dedicating a day and giving it to the Lord, which is already his, and maybe some of us aren't too good at doing that, or a lot of us. And then the fifth commandment last week, where we talked about honoring our father and mother. And I'm sure nobody here has done that perfectly. And maybe you've seen what today's commandment is, and you've thought, finally, a commandment that I can feel good about. A commandment that I have kept. I've never murdered anybody, nor do I plan on murdering anybody in the near future. Well, I want to say to you, don't get too comfortable just yet. But in a way, this is a commandment that most people feel good about. Even those who view the Ten Commandments as a dangerous threat upon society, they have no problems with this commandment. They all see why it has to be there. Everyone, most people, can agree that murder is bad and should be unlawful. But while most people can agree that cold-blooded, 
premeditated murder of another human being is wrong and should be illegal or unlawful, it gets more and more complicated the deeper you dive into it. Especially because this sixth commandment, it is the shortest commandment, and there aren't any disclaimers, any qualifiers, or any fine print explaining all of the small details and nuances. In the Hebrew, it's just two words, lo ratzak, very loosely translated into the English as don't kill. But kill is too generic. In English, kill just means to take or to end a life. It doesn't speak to motive, right? I can kill somebody deliberately or I can kill somebody by accident. It doesn't speak to scope. I can kill a fly or I can kill a million people. It doesn't speak to the object. I can kill myself or I can kill an animal. So how do we know what the sixth commandment covers? Yesterday was our first ever exilic fishing trip. Did the people who went and caught fish and then subsequently cooked and ate the fish, did they break the sixth commandment? They ended lives of many, many fish. In English, the word kill can refer to so many different circumstances in the taking of a life, but thankfully in the Hebrew, there are at least eight different words for kill. And this one, ratzak, is used very intentionally. You know, there are other Hebrew words that are used for the execution of a death sentence or the type of killing a soldier does on the battlefield or self-defense. This word is never used to refer to hunting or the killing of an animal. This word is specifically used for the unlawful killing of a human being. So some Bibles, like the NIV or the ESV, they translate it as murder, not kill. Because murder is the unlawful or the wrong killing of a human being. If you killed someone defending yourself, somebody who was trying to kill you, you wouldn't be convicted of murder because your defense would be, well, self-defense. But you know, murder it's, murder, it's still not a clean translation because ratzak, it also refers to, for example, manslaughter or killing someone accidentally or through negligence. Basically, it refers to any form of wrongful death. So one commentator puts it this way. What the sixth commandment forbids is the unjust taking of a legally innocent life. It applies to murder in cold blood, manslaughter with passionate rage, negligent homicide resulting from recklessness or carelessness. So perhaps the best translation is, you shall not kill unlawfully. So that gives us a little bit more of a precise definition of the commandment. And most, if not all of you, are still good. Still haven't committed it but it still gets pretty complicated when you consider the implications of this commandment with respect to such issues such as birth control, abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, etc. 
How is a Christian meant to understand and apply the sixth commandment in extremely nuanced and gray circumstances of life and death? In order to do this, I want to trace this commandment all the way to its roots. At the heart of this commandment is not merely a negative, a prohibition of killing, but also a positive, a unique valuation of human life. If we understand what the Bible says about the value and the sanctity of human life, we will be able to faithfully allow this commandment to inform our positions on even the most controversial issues regarding human life. So the three areas I point you to this afternoon are the beauty of creation, the sin of decreation, and the hope of recreation. First, the beauty of creation. The Bible tells us that God created this world with care and purpose. You know, unlike other creation accounts, Genesis tells us that the world did not come through, uh, come through a consequence of some great struggle or upheaval. The Bible tells us that God created the world step by step. And every step of the way, God stops to admire the beauty of creation. Again and again in Genesis 1, and God saw that it was good. That word good, tov, it also means beautiful or precious. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You know, God creates the world, and when it comes time to create man, humanity, he does something special. He creates man in his image and gives him dominion over all of creation. Man is made in God's image. Now, God is a great king, so what does he do? He makes man also a king over creation. Verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. Creation shows us that human life, even more than the rest of all creation, it is incredibly valuable and precious. You know, this is unique to the God of the Bible. Eastern religions, for example, they teach that the body is a cage that needs to be escaped. But the God of the Bible alone looks at creation and says, good, not just good, very good, beautiful, precious. So if you don't believe in God, let's say you're an atheist and you say there is no God, then what you believe about the world is that the world is the product of random forces, chance. Well, in that scenario, life cannot have any inherent value. It is only a perceived value. It is only a value that you have on it. 
but it is not an actual value. So if you don't believe in God, then all you're left with is the rule of nature. And what is nature? Survival of the fittest. The strong survived, the weak died. The concept of human value, if you take God out of the picture, it's just a social construct that society agrees is beneficial, but it is not actual, it is not objective, it is not natural. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Let's say you're holding a piece of paper in your hand and you tell me this piece of paper is worth $100. And then I can look at that same piece of paper and tells you, tell you, no, it's actually worth nothing. Maybe a cent? Well, who's right in that scenario? Well, we're both right and we're both wrong. The best either of us can do is to try to convince as many people as possible <clears throat> that my respective valuation is correct. But if there is a higher authority, like the U.S. Treasury, that tells us that that particular piece of paper is actually worth $100, now we have an objective valuation. Otherwise, it's just, I think this, I think that, no one's right, no one's wrong. We're both right, we're both wrong. So in the same way, only when you have a higher authority that values human life, will that life be intrinsically and truly valuable. So why does the Bible say that we should not murder? Well, Genesis 9, 6 says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood will, will be shed for in the image of God, he made man. The Bible tells us that God created man in his image and he regards all of human life as precious. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. said it best. He wrote that God's image in us gives every person a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him a dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man, from a treble white to a base black, is significant on God's keyboard, precisely because every man is made in the image of God. So the Bible calls us to respect and value every person because he or she is created in the image of God. And murder is the opposite of this. God created man with purpose and value. Murder, then, is essentially decreation. The starting point of murder, it's to disregard or reject the victim as an image bearer of God. Murder begins with the dehumanizing of the other. So the way it's supposed to work is this. You love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and by extension, you love your neighbor because they're valued and loved by God as his image bearer. But the problem is sin. And in sin, what happens is you elevate yourself to be as God. And you put yourself over your neighbor. You know, the very first murder that we see in Genesis 4, Cain murders his brother because his pride is hurt when God rejects his offering. 
So what does he do? He rejects God. He also fails to acknowledge the God-given worth of his brother's life. And his pride is more important to him than the life of his brother. Abel is not a human created in God's image, but he's just an obstacle in the way of Cain's throne. You know, this makes sense when you look at how people have tried to justify some of the biggest atrocities throughout history as they were happening. For example, in our country, during the time of slavery and Jim Crow and even into the civil rights era, did you know that there were scientists who were trying to prove that blacks were biologically less human than whites? I was shocked. I took a senior seminar in college called Race and Color in America, and I read through these studies. And these studies were used to dehumanize an entire race of people. Slavery is okay. Why? Because these people are less than human. Do you see the rationale there? This same logic was used in Nazi Germany. What was the the, the ideology there? It was the Aryan race is superior. It was an elevation of the Aryan race and a relegation of the Jews to justify genocide. The Jews were relegated to this subhuman category of personhood to justify extermination. And you know, we also see this at the heart of the abortion debate. Defenders of abortion, they refuse to acknowledge that the unborn is human. Why? Because if it is just a pre-human collection of cells and not a life, then it's not an injustice to destroy it. Because civil rights do not extend to the unborn if they are not human. Murder begins with dehumanizing the other. We see this also in, in euthanasia, where the focus is often on the patient's quality of life. You hear this all the time. If the person's quality of life falls under a certain threshold, then that life is not worth extending or saving. But the sixth commandment, it prioritizes the sanctity of life over the quality of life. If God is the Lord and the giver of life, then he alone has the ultimate prerogative to give life and to take life away. Murder dehumanizes the victim. It disregards the image of God in the victim. And the murderer steps into the place of God when he decides to take life as he sees fit. It is rebelling against God's purpose in creation. And you know what? I think the Bible tells us that as sinners, we have all regularly and actively participated in decreation. There's a quote on the first page of your bulletin. I just want to read that for us now. Dalma says in his book, The Ten Commandments, the sixth commandment penetrates down to the root of all killing and thereby forbids any wrong attitude of the heart. It unmasks not only wrong actions, but wrong attitudes as well. 
But we must take one more step, for otherwise we would be stopping with a negative. Saying no to death means saying yes to life. And this yes is just as radical as our no. We have not arrived if we simply avoid killing or hating our neighbor, for the opposite of these is that we must love our neighbor. The tone of the entire Sermon on the Mount is not that we spare our neighbor the worst, but that we give him the best. And the best we should bestow even upon our enemies. Right here, the deepest significance of the sixth commandment comes to light. You know, when Jesus in in Matthew 5 is talking about the sixth commandment, he said this, You've heard that it was said, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. 1 John 3 says this, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You know, we may not have pulled the trigger. We may not have swung the sword. But all of us have failed to love our neighbors. And therefore, we have broken the sixth commandment. It is murder. Of course, not the same quantitatively, but the same qualitatively. If we hate others, it is murder. We are called to love our neighbors. To obey the sixth commandment, then, is not just to avoid killing or hating, but that we must love our neighbor. You know, one of the most famous stories that Jesus ever told is the parable of the Good Samaritan. A lawyer comes and tests Jesus, and he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asks him, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answers correctly. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, good, go do it. But the lawyer, he wants to justify himself, as lawyers are prone to do. He asks, and who is my neighbor? He asks this question, why? Because the moment Jesus slaps a definition on it, it makes the command doable and manageable. So if Jesus were to say, um, I think it means everyone uh, on your floor. No, 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 no. Everyone in your building. Everyone in your department at work. Everyone in your, your neighborhood. Everyone who's, who's nice to you. Every... See, the moment he says that, the man goes, oh, I've done that. Or he goes, okay, got it. I'll go do that and come back. Jesus won't give him a definition. Instead, he gives him a story. And here's the story. Jesus says, A man was traveling on a very famous road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on the way he was robbed, beaten, and left for dead. A priest comes along. He sees the man, and rather than stopping, he deliberately passes by the man on the other side of the road. And another very moral man, a Levite, he comes and he does the same thing. But a Samaritan of all people. You know, remember, Samaritans and Jews, they really did not get along at all. A Samaritan stops 
and saves the man's life at significant cost to himself. Now, as Jesus is telling this story, it's clear to everyone listening that the robbers, the bandits, they definitely violated the sixth commandment. Even though technically the man survived, they would be prosecuted as murderers. Why? They left the man for dead. But the reality of this story is that the priest and the Levite also broke the sixth commandment in their failure to love their neighbor. They came along, they saw this man, and they made the conscious decision to pass by on the other side of the road. They saw him, but they did not regard him as an image bearer of God to be loved. Instead, they were probably thinking, A, he's probably already dead. And if not, B, if he's still alive, the robbers are probably close by. So it would be really dangerous if I stopped to help this man. They view him as less than worthy to be loved, and they value their self-preservation above all else. This is at the heart of murder. We've all done this. We, we've all prioritized our own wants, our own needs, our own interests above the welfare and the life of others. We've all broken the sixth commandment. So what do we do? My last point is the hope of recreation. If you walk out of this room today and you think, you know what, I'm never going to break the sixth commandment ever again. I'm going to help every single person I see. I'm going to love my neighbor no matter what. I'm going to try really, really hard never to hate anybody ever again. If that is your resolution, I think you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Because this is not something you can achieve by trying really hard. Obeying the sixth commandment, it, it goes against every natural inclination that we have. And I know this because I'm a father and I'm tempted to murder someone every 20 minutes of my life. So what do we do if willpower and trying really hard won't get us there? It's interesting that because Jesus ends the parable of the Good Samaritan by telling the lawyer, go and do the same as the Samaritan, we often mistakenly think that the moral of this story is be good like the Samaritan. Don't be like the priest and the Levite. Here's an example to follow. If that's true, that's a scary message. If Jesus is saying, just be good, we're all in a lot of trouble because we're not. We can't be like the Good Samaritan just by trying really hard. If you place yourself in this story, who are you meant to be? We're not meant to see ourselves in this story as somebody walking along the road and we see someone dying in the street. What are we going to do? That's not how we're meant to understand this story. You're actually meant to see yourself 
as the man dying in the street. You know, when the lawyer asked Jesus, uh, so who is my neighbor? Jesus' response to him is actually this. If you were dying in the street, what would you want someone to do for you? You know, the Bible tells us that we're all guilty of sin. We're just as condemned as a murderer. Paul tells us that we were dead in our trespasses, lying in the street, completely unable to save ourselves. And morality, as embodied by the priest and the Levite, they're not enough to save us. The only way we can be saved is when a sworn enemy, rather than passing by, stops, comes to us, bends down, picks us up, brings us back to life, and he pays for our healing. He does this not at the risk of his own life, but at the cost of his own life. Jesus is the neighbor that we did not deserve, the one who loved us enough to save us forever. Jesus comes to us, and he is murdered on the cross so that murderers like us can be forgiven and freed. This is an entirely different motivation than try really hard. You know, we live to obey the sixth commandment now out of sheer gratitude because even murderers like me have been saved by grace. Jesus saw us. He did not dehumanize us. He did not prioritize himself over us, but he humbled himself and became a servant. He saw us as his image bearers, broken and sinful, yes, but still precious, valuable to him. And he died to bring us life. So we can live to obey the sixth commandment. And I'll close with just a few ways we can begin to do this. First question for you. Are there people in your life that you hate or can't forgive? Or is there someone right now who hates you? Jesus says this in Matthew 5. So if you're offering a gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Is that something that you need to do today? Well, pray. Seek reconciliation. Remember how loved you are and extend that love to your neighbor who is a precious image bearer of God. Second question. Who are the people who are placed in your path? You know, the priest and the Levite, by virtue of their professions, um, part of their job was to help the poor was to show mercy. So they were probably involved in many programs of mercy. They probably oversaw a lot of, of ministries and different uh, things that existed to help the poor people. But the person that they didn't help was a person right in front of them. It was a person that was right in their path. And you know what? It's often the people who are right in our path who are the hardest to love and to serve. Who has God placed in your life 
who needs to be loved and helped, find them. Don't pass them by. Finally, as Christians, I want to encourage you to be thinking critically and seeking our wisdom from the Bible. I encourage you to think through the broader implications of the sixth commandment. Where do you stand on issues like abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide? How does the sixth commandment inform our understanding of racial reconciliation and other complex and nuanced political issues? Think. Rather than just accepting what other people are saying on these issues, think through them critically for yourselves. There's a quote, the second quote in your bulletin on page one. I just want to read the second part of it as we close. Here's what Kevin DeYoung says. He says this, Defend, honor, and give thanks for life. Yours, your children's, and your parents. May we all pray work and labor, no matter what political party we're a part of or who we voted for, so that every human life is protected, prized, and considered precious. If we take anything away from the sixth commandment, it should be this. Life is precious. Your neighbors, those in your life, those in this world are valuable. So let us see this world as God sees it, full of people who need to be loved and cared for. And let us not forget that Christ has done his work of new creation in our lives, even though we didn't deserve it, so that we can now go love our neighbors and honor the sixth commandment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sixth commandment. We thank you that you regard life as precious, all of life. That even those who are of the lowest stature, the least, the hurting, the marginalized, the oppressed, you identify with them. We thank you that you have set for us an example of grace and humility. And I pray that we would follow your example but that we would obey the sixth commandment out of gratitude in response to the grace that we have been shown. Bless us. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.